Hey, left fielders, you know our partner TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. Hi, this is Zach Hackenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. Multifamily, hands down, is just the star of the show. Not only do we believe in the actual fundamentals of multifamily, but we do believe it's a, it is the most recession-proof asset out of all the assets in real estate. I think it's proven time and time again, historically, that it just has incredible performance, historic data. We also believe in the fundamentals for the future. We believe in the ability to control the asset. And then obviously it has those tax advantages that we were getting hit in the single family space. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Peter Kim, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm very excited today to have Ashley Wilson with us. She is the founder and CEO of Bar Down Investments, co-founder of Apartment Addicts, and co-founder of How's It Look, uh, spelled house, which I think is pretty cool. She's also the best-selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, Knowledge and Inspiration from 20 Women Real Estate Investors. She's a regular contributor to Rent Magazine and has hosted several Bigger Pockets multifamily series. She started investing in 2009. We're going to hear more about that. She's been involved in over two. 110 million in transactions and, and managed over 10 million in construction with both single and multifamily across over 1,500 units. So she's done everything and we're super excited to have her with us. Ashley, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. So the first question we always ask is just to understand your journey. How did you get into real estate? And then also, how, how did you become an operator, a syndicator, and all of that? So if you can just kind of start wherever you think the beginning is and, and give us your backstory, that'd be awesome. Sure. So I actually started working in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked in clinical research and development for several major pharmaceutical companies. And like most people who start in real estate, I started doing it on the side. I started with house hacking short-term rentals, long-term rentals, transitioned into flipping, and then uh, eventually multifamily. So I've kind of done a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say of everything, but a little bit of a lot of different asset classes. I thoroughly enjoy multifamily though, and that's where I focus today. 
And why multifamily? Like, you know, everyone has their their journey and yours sounds similar. You know, I did some rentals, I did some house flips and, and you know, did, was not successful at that. And then, you know, I bought some small multifamilies and I decided I wanted to be a syndicator. And then I went to a seminar and thought, nope, no chance. I'm a passive and I found the LP life and, and that's what I do. So why multifamily and why did you decide to be an operator where you're syndicating deals? Uh the first part of the question in terms of why multifamily, my husband and I in, I think it was 2017, we started looking at different asset classes. Um, and the trigger for that was our tax exposure. So we are pretty thorough when it comes to reviewing our finances. And what we realized in the flipping industry is that we were doing, we targeted in flipping uh, six-figure profits on every house. So Essentially, when we got our tax bill each year, one of those houses were done for free. And that <laughs> is not something that I can stomach, um, especially because I was the one who was actually going through the process of uh, changing this house over with my father, who was my uh, business partner in that business. Um, so we said, you know, there's got to be a better way. And we spent about three months analyzing every single asset class and the benefits to each asset class and the drawbacks. And then we looked at it in terms of where we wanted to grow and what we wanted to achieve. And multifamily, hands down, is just the star of the show. Um, not only do we believe in the actual fundamentals of multifamily, but we do believe it's a, it is the most recession-proof um, asset out of all the assets in real estate. I think it's proven time and time again, historically, that it just has incredible performance, uh, historic data. We also believe in the fundamentals for the future. We believe in the ability to control the asset. And then obviously it has those tax advantages that we were getting hit uh, with in the single family space. So that's why we transitioned into multifamily. With respect to why I transitioned into an operator, it actually kind of happens by chance. And what I mean by that is once we had decided we wanted to go into commercial real estate, specifically multifamily, I did what I do best, which is connecting with people. And I went out and I'm a firm believer that when you go out, you lead with value. So the very first person I spoke to, I didn't even know was in multifamily, but he was someone that I had um, had a relationship with for six years in real estate. He was a, a friend of mine in the real estate industry. And I told him that I wanted to go into multifamily. I wanted to partner with large operators and ownership groups. And the value that I thought I could add was that I am very well versed in construction and I could manage the construction piece of a, pro a project. And the reason why I felt that that was a huge value is because that's the huge void I saw in the market. When I looked at other operating groups, and I'm not even talking about small shops, I'm talking about even large shops as well, they tend to outsource the construction piece. And I'm a firm believer that if you've owned a single family house, you know you can't even go a year without having some sort of issue that you need to take care of on your own single family home. You extrapolate that over 100 units over a three to five year, which is the average hold period um, for a lot of these multifamily properties, you're just exacerbating the issue. And when you don't have alignment when you're outsourcing the construction piece 
mostly because people on the ownership team aren't knowledgeable about construction. That gets into uh, a really a disservice to passive investors because you are not protecting their money. I mean, the at the end of the day, that's our number one job. Our number one job is to protect the investor's capital. The way in which we do it all varies, but that's your number one job. So if you are not protecting the investor's capital because you aren't knowledgeable enough to know that there are other ways that you can renovate something, there's a ways ways in which you can negotiate, um, changing of product products, changing of um, the actual uh, resolution. Um, those are all things that you can control when you manage construction very thoroughly. So I said that to this individual and they just happened to be under contract for 124 unit, which I didn't know when I had this conversation, but they were under contract for 124 unit property in Houston. And while they were under contract, one of the buildings burnt to the ground. And of course, no one on the ownership team had any construction knowledge or experience. So they were going to outsource it. And they said, can you rebuild this building and manage the project? And I said, yes. And I came in, I started doing that. And while doing that, I also recognized that they weren't managing the asset. They were doing what most groups did at that time, which is just pure acquisitions mode. And they focused on acquire, acquire, underwrite, acquire. And that's in large part due to how the fee structure is set up in in the syndication world. So in terms of being able to keep the lights on, so to speak, you have to acquire. That's a lot of people's business strategy. I would say, by and large, that's the majority of people's business strategies. So what ends up happening is you get to the acquisition, and that's why everyone celebrates it online because they're so excited about the acquisition. We celebrate when we sell. Like that's, you know, that's right. when you celebrate, not when you acquire. Yes, it's a mini milestone, but it's not, it doesn't warrant the the response that, you know, everyone is celebrating this ex- acquisition. And the reason they're celebrating is because they're getting paid. The investor isn't getting paid, but the ownership group is, uh, the general partnership ownership group is. So um, I saw this group doing the same thing. They were in acquisition mode. And I, I personally had uh, six figures invested in, and then I brought my own investors in. Plus, you know, I just am an ethical person. I can't <laughs> sit by and watch a freight train just go wherever the economy wants to take it um, and rely on cap rate compression. I'm not a believer in that. I've never been a believer in that. I believe that operations is extremely important on any sort of asset. Um, But in downturns, operations is the most important. And I think you're seeing that today. It's amazing how many people are finally talking about operations. But a year ago, they weren't. A year ago, they were talking about these incredible, you know, 20, 30 plus IRR returns, when in reality, it wasn't their operations that caused it. It was the economy. It was the interest rates. It was the compressed cap rates. Those are the things that got those returns, not their actual operations. That was fantastic. There is so much there. I wrote down probably six questions. Um, so I'm going to have to dive back into it. But you mentioned in the first part of your answer, controlling the asset. And can you expand on that exactly what you mean by, and I think this also will kind of pivot into the operations part that you said at the end, because what do you mean by controlling the asset? And then also kind of secondarily, what can you do on operations that's different than someone that's just waiting for the cap rates to be in the right spot? 
Another thing that I'm a firm believer on is I believe that the more aspects of something you control, the higher probability of success. So I can't control interest rates. I cannot control cap rates. But what I can control is how we do day-to-day operations on the property. I can control that. I can control our marketing efforts. I can control how much reserves we have. I can control what we spend on a project. I can control what our ROI is going to be on the project based on what renovations I decide to do. All of those factors need detail-oriented hardworking people to execute. So communication, something I can control. Process flow, something I can control. Those are all things that we can control. Selecting a market in which we go in from the start is something I can can control. Underwriting in terms of the actual assumptions. People today are doing a lot of year-over-year rent growth that's reflective of what we've seen historically, but I think you could argue that we're not going to continue to see that year-over-year rent growth that, you know, is in the threes, which was, I think, nationwide our average in multifamily, three over 3% annual rent growth for the next couple of years. People might say that's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. It's a huge deal when you go to exit if the interest rates aren't where you've projected them, if the cap rates aren't where you projected them, if they're underperforming. So if those things are underperforming and you let go of something you can control, where there's literally data available, um, CoStar, Yardi Matrix, all of those sources can provide answers. And it's just a matter of doing the proper due diligence to look up that information and control those variables. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of controlling. Um, Some people are a little bit more hands-on than others. I think you can ask anyone on my team that I'm extremely hands-on, a little bit too much hands-on, but I would rather be too much hands-on than not enough hands to manage the project. I mean, these are multi-million dollar businesses. You do not want people just willy-nilly managing these projects because one little thing can in multifamily and large multifamily can translate to millions. So that's why it's more important to me. I mean, I was this hyper-focused when I did single family too, because I was trying to squeeze as many pennies out of that investment as possible. But on multifamily, you have the opposite side of the coin, you know, no pun intended, which is that you're having dramatic um, impact over little things um, because of the cap rate and how uh, commercial real estate is evaluated. I forget your second question. I'm sorry. No, that, that, no, no worries. I, I got to start learning to only ask one question at a time, but there's so much that I want to talk about. Um, the second one was how do you, you know, you talked about operations and how you do that differently. And I think you touched on that a little bit in that answer. But I think what I'm looking for is, you know, you're, you're talking about, you're not the standard operator, right? You're not looking at cap rates as much. You're looking at the operations. So what do you do in those operations to add value to the asset or to position it so that you are earning the returns and you can get to that point where you celebrate, which is the sale? One of the things I think good operators do and something that we do is time is money. So one of the metrics that people use to assess an investment is internal rate of return. It's not as common as it was 
four years ago to use that as a measure, but let's look at the fundamentals of internal rate of return or IRR. IRR was initially used because it allows investors to compare assets against other assets. So it is a good standard rule of thumb as opposed to average annual return, where average annual return doesn't allow you to compare assets across assets when you're deciding between different investment opportunities. The problem is IRR is a very complicated formula. So people have defaulted to using AAR as their metric in terms of deciding what they want to do, average annual return. With IRR and the fact that it historically used to be used, IRR factors in this whole sophisticated concept that very savvy investors know, which is the time value of money concept. So the faster you get your returns back, even if you get a little bit less of returns uh, than you would if you held the project longer, the greater of an opportunity you have to reinvest those returns. In fact, that's one of the underlying principles of internal rate of return is the assumption that you would reinvest those profits. So under that principle, it is important to execute a project very quickly. So you were asking what specifically am I doing as an operator? One thing that we do as an an operation-focused company, and I've seen other great operators do, is they figure out how to reposition an asset extremely quickly. And we are very good at doing that. So our work in terms of managing the asset doesn't happen once we go to the closing table. It happens months before that, when we're lining up our contractors' materials, business plan, Uh, our team, getting everyone on board. That's number one. That's step one. Number two is making sure that everyone is on the same page on that plan and understands why we're doing that plan, because that allows people to make real life decisions and gives them the autonomy to make decisions that are based on the premise of what we are trying to achieve. You know, everyone rags on property management companies, but they're reluctant to be very transparent about the business plan. That's the underlying problem when you have issues with property management companies. I believe it's probably the number one reason people have problems. So when you have alignment across all of these different groups that are going to touch this asset, you have a better chance of being able to convert that property pretty quickly. So what we like to do is we like to come into a property gangbusters, ready to go from day one, we're hitting the ground running. We achieve more in the first week than most people achieve in 30 days because we have a very thorough system in which we know what we're executing. Everyone has their own list of responsibilities that they're held accountable to achieve. And then when we go to execute in terms of our renovation schedule, for example, we are able to achieve that typically within 18 months or less. So if you look at typical underwriting, underwriting normally projects out a a reposition within three years. The quicker you can get that reposition, the quicker you can realize those gains, the quicker you can participate in the annual appreciation, the quicker you are able to position your property for a sale or a refinance if the opportunity presents itself. If you're still mid-renovation, you're limiting your exit opportunities or your refinance opportunities, which in turn impacts your investors. So Ways in which we do this very specifically is that while we're doing renovations, we realize the value of having existing tenants who would still qualify for renovated premium units, we incentivize them to move into that unit. We either discount the rent so we're not realizing the full gain, 
and or we help with moving expenses or we give them a gift card. Why would we do that? Some people would argue, yeah, but you're not realizing the full game. It is more important to us to renovate as many units as possible and have complete renovated product to offer an overall as a property than to just get the full gain on that one unit. And the reason why that is the case is if, if you perform that out and you have all renovated product, yes, that person moves into a renovated unit at maybe a slight discount. You can then access their unit faster because maybe they would have stayed in their unit another six months, eight months, nine months, whatever. So that way you can access their unit and then bring someone else new in or get someone else to move into that unit. And you can cycle through the units much quicker. And in in doing so, you've now renovated the property faster. Then you can work on building up the um, total income as well because you have all of this renovated product. So it's something that we like to do pretty quickly. Uh, we also do, do different levels of renovation so we can have a greater absorption so people can tap into that. But the average um, uh, non-renewal uh, across the country, NAA reported this pre-COVID, so it's probably way more today than it was pre-COVID, was when you have someone non-renew, it's anywhere from five to $10,000 a unit expense on the property. And you might, if you're an operator, say, there's no way that's true. But if you break it down, you can see how quickly it adds up. So you have the loss to lease, you have the marketing expense, you have your team's expense, and then you have all of the actual expense of getting that unit ready to go. So when you look at it from that perspective and you look at what COVID has done to expenses, we have increased salaries. We have more distractions in the market than ever before. So our marketing spend has to go up. We have higher cost of materials and we have a labor shortage. So in terms of getting laborers out to, you know, contractors to do these renovations, it's at a higher expense. So you also have the appreciation overall in the in the apartment industry. So the units themselves, it has a greater loss to lease. So I would suspect we're easily twelve, fifteen thousand dollars for every single unit that is not um, uh, renewed. That's interesting. I haven't heard that before, but just from my basic multifamily experience, I, I completely understand the high cost of replacing. Um, a tenant. And it, and like you said, it's not just the renovation of the unit. There's all these other costs that stack up. And I don't think everyone really looks at that. Now, you mentioned that you rush to try to renovate all the units, right, in, in a building. And that's that's different from many value-add operators, right? There are, there's always talk of, we well, got to leave meat on the bone for the next person. So can you tell us a little bit about, I, I like your philosophy, but it's different than the standard um, operator. So why, why is that? You don't, you don't feel like you need to leave anything on the bone. I think it's one of two things. One is I'm seeing meat on the bone differently than someone else. So for example, my meat on the bone may be lost to lease. So someone may come in and say, okay, she's renovated all these units. So I don't have to take care of the capital expense items, but she has moved a bunch of people into these units at discounted rates when the market rate should be X and they're paying Y. So the meat on the bone could be, you know, collapsing that loss to lease. Um, my my view on this is there's a, there's a shot. We won't get to even the end of the renovation project. My position on 
holding any asset in real estate is the power in holding that asset is your ability to exit. The more days that you hold an asset where you are positioned to exit at any given time, the higher of a likelihood you have at realizing the greatest gain. When you are in a position where you're dragging out the ability to exit, you might be missing the, the greatest opportunity to exit within that given market cycle for that specific submarket. So that is why I believe the faster you operate um, your business plan, the faster you execute it, the greater of a chance that you have to have the greatest return for your investors. Yeah, I love that because the, the meat on the bone is whatever, you know, I, I, always, I never really understood, okay, yeah, you're, you're not doing your full business plan because you want to let someone else buy and do their full business plan. Um, but that that's, you do it. You have, you, you do save meat on the bone. It's just different because you're having rents that are maybe a little bit under market for the renovations. And so someone looks at that and says, oh, I'll buy that because we can push rent. So I think that's, that's really a smart way to operate. Now you mentioned earlier, you, you kind of just mentioned it on, on the side that you, you know, when you're buying real estate and syndicating it, you're, you're running a business, right? Which Obviously, that, that, that's clear, but I've heard you in, in other podcasts talking about the difference between being a real estate investor, you know, buying properties and, and looking at it as I'm a business owner who happens to be in real estate. Can you talk about that? Because I think that really frames how you look at the overall business and industry. Yeah, I don't look at myself as a multifamily owner. I look at myself as a business owner. We own multiple multi-million dollar businesses because the fundamentals are very similar. Um, and what I mean by that is it really just comes down to numbers. You know, we can spend the entire time today talking about all the different intricacies of the operations in terms of the execution. And that's with respect to the asset class that the business is within. But in terms of the fundamentals on how you operate a business, it's very simplistic. You're trying to increase your income. You're trying to decrease your expenses to increase the overall business evaluation as businesses are evaluated off of the net operating income. So the net of your income minus your operating expenses. Coupled with that, you have to take into consideration your cost of capital because you're covering items below the line like your capital expenses. So let's say you need a roof replacement. So it doesn't matter what that asset houses in terms of the business. It matters the overall business performance. And when you look at it like that, you just figure out that specific business model and you execute on that. When I look at real estate investors, I typically think of people who are investing in something outside of an actual business. So they're actually maximizing the value of the land. I'm not maximizing the value of the land. I'm maximizing the business that the land holds. I just happen to get land when we buy the business. But if I bought the business itself, I would still operate it the same way. I'm not improving the value of the land. Now, if I was taking a building tearing it down and then putting something else on the land, then that in and of itself, that single act increases the value of the land, but it doesn't increase the business that it houses. So understanding business fundamentals are actually, in my opinion, more important. Sometimes you could even argue equally important as to understanding multifamily itself. Because if you understand business in it, in and of itself, you understand marketing, you understand accounting, you understand legal sides, you can, and I'm not saying you're a CPA or you pretend to be a lawyer, so don't take that out of context. But what I'm trying to say right. is all of those same fundamentals carry over. And that's why I think I've been so successful is because 
in my previous jobs and entrepreneurship ventures, I have always focused on the business fundamentals. And that's why I think my skills can carry over. And that's why, you know, I'm on a lot of different uh, nonprofits and charity organizations, and they can't believe how much I can contribute when I don't even know the inner workings of the business, because the fundamentals are the same from business to business. So that's why I think if you just really focus on those items, it's amazing how much of an impact that they can have. So analyzing your marketing, for example, where are your lead sources coming from? What has the greatest yield? Because I don't care. There's an example. We had a property and everyone says you use apartments.com, apartments.com, apartments.com. Okay. Well, we had this one property. It was on apartments.com. And yes, it gave us a ton of foot traffic, which was fantastic. But our conversion out of hundreds of leads was one lease. There's two ways to look at that. One way to look at that is my team doesn't know how to convert, right? My team needs to work on converting from getting that person through the door to signing a contract. The other way to look at it is they're not credible sources to begin with. So you have to analyze it from two different viewpoints. Now, when we looked at the rest of our sub subject data, we looked at all of our other lead gens, we looked at all the other foot traffic, they didn't have an issue converting. In fact, we had a higher than industry standard conversion on all of the traffic that got in the door, but it was just apartments.com that wasn't converting. So what did we do? We scrapped apartments.com entirely because to us, it was not worth wasting our time on traffic that didn't convert. We would rather change that ad spend to somewhere else that we had a greater yield. So we actually doubled down on Google Analytics and SEO AdWords, and we never had to worry about occupancy again. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Visor.co. Well, that's interesting. And I love your perspective on the, on, you know, you're running a business and each property is its own business. I mean, all of that makes sense. And if you put those same fundamentals into place on each property, you know, it doesn't matter what the asset is. I mean, it does in, in, but the business is what you're running. So I think that's, that's really great. I'd like to pivot a little bit 
and just talk about debt, right? Because that's that's one of the big things that's causing issues. And can you talk about the debt that you put in place over the past few years? And and then if there's, you know, if it's adjustable, I know there's been some issues some people have had with, you know, stopping distributions and some people think that's good. Some people are really upset about it. And just the overview of, of how the debt is. And most importantly to me, how do you communicate that to your investors so that they're prepared for whatever is happening? Because it is rocky times, uncertain mm-hmm. times right now. Fantastic question. So one of the things in the commercial space and in single family space, not so much in single family, I guess it's more commercial because there are different loan products, is the um, the you know the popular debt program of the time. So because we had interest rates that were dropping, the go-to uh, debt preference was this floating rate debt. Floating rate debt is also popular in value adds because typically the strategy is to get floating rate debt, bridge debt, so to speak, bridging the gap from uh, a, a property that's in distress to a stabilized property. Um, and then refinancing into long-term debt. But the, the most popular product um, over the past couple of years was this floating rate debt. And a lot of people participated. We participated on one property with floating rate debt. And to your point, the challenge is not necessarily that the interest rates have gone up because lenders, when you originate floating rate debt, require you to get what's called a rate cap. So that puts a threshold or a ceiling on the interest that you would pay on that loan um, because you buy a rate cap. Rate caps have two different variables that you are buying when you buy one. One is the ceiling and two is the term. So you could have a one-year, two-year, three-year, five, ten-year term. It doesn't matter. And then the ceiling is called a strike uh, rate. So for example, we bought a 1% strike. That means 100 basis points over our existing interest, whatever we locked in at. And then we had a three-year term. Well, lenders, when you're now owning and operating the property, do exactly what they do. You know, If you have a single-family home, you can relate to this, is they accrue. So similar to how on single-family, they accrue for your taxes. They may even accrue for your insurance. So when the renewal period comes up, the lender has confidence that you are not going to default on those two items that you need um, for owning a property. They do the same thing with a rate cap, and that's to protect their exposure on holding the senior debt. So the issue is that these rate cap accruals are going crazy because never in the history of um, these type of loan programs have the interest rates skyrocketed as quickly as they have. It has nothing to do with the actual rate itself. It's the variance between the original amounts that you locked under versus what the interest rate is today over that period of time. Because of that, lenders are behind in terms of trying to figure out how do we solve these issues? Because I'll give you a real life example. I don't mind sharing this. Our property that we purchased with floating rate debt, when we purchased it, we were accruing $303 a month. Today, we are accruing $74,000 a month. That is a huge difference in terms of our accrual for the rate cap. And the reason this has become so problematic is because the calculation is based on the remaining term that you have left. So most people originated the originated 
that originated, excuse me, this debt two to three years ago. And the interest rates have only climbed over the past year, year, a little over a year. So we're in an environment where you only had one more year left before you had to buy a replacement cap, but you have to make up, you know, $600,000. So they take whatever remaining term you have left and they bump your accrual. So it's crushing cash flow. That's the, that's the issue. It's crushing cash flow. And that's why so many properties, including our property, full transparency, we stopped distributions. We actually stopped them very early on because I could see the writing on the wall. But we also, when we bought into this, we built our reserves. We knew that, you know, we weren't going to see these interest rates uh, stay low like this forever. We accounted for it. Now we didn't account for where it is today and how fast it, uh, came up. I mean, if we did, you know, I'd be sitting on a yacht somewhere because I clearly can predict the future, but, um, (laughs) we did build in some cushions. So we haven't had to have any capital calls. We haven't even had to have a discussion about capital calls because we built in reserve. That's why you go with good operators right there is why you go with good operators. And I remember when I went to NMHC this year, there were some major houses. I won't throw anyone under the bus, but they were saying, oh, you got to do, you got to do your capital call early because we'll probably need a second one. And it's better to be the first one doing a capital call than be later in the game doing a capital call. And I'm like, no, it's not. If you're doing a capital call today, that would tell me as an investor that you're like, SOL long-term, because if you need a capital call in February of 2022, like you're not making it through the end of this year. Like this is just the beginning. Like this is not even close to the end. So um, it's funny how people see things differently. I, I didn't, I didn't see doing a capital call early. You know, we haven't knock on wood, you know, we remain uh, very strong with this. I mean, our, our rate cap is due to, you know, purchase. So, um, we'll, we'll just repur- you know, purchase a new one now. Um, but your, your second question I think is more important because, um, that's understanding what's going on, but the, the importance of what you just asked goes back to the transparency and communication you have with your investors. So I am a huge believer, um, that you have to balance transparency with the fact that, some of your investors invest because they don't want to know. They just want to be able to put money somewhere because they have their own stress and their own W-2, their own world. Um, so they don't want to know like every single little detail. You know, if someone's complaining about a unit, you don't you don't give them that kind of detail, but you do give them detail when it comes to distributions. Anything related to the profitability of the apartment to me is where I draw the line and I say these things need to be um, disclosed. Anything that impacts the investor personally. So uh, we actually, our communication overall at our company, and it has been from day one, is that we do a monthly newsletter. Within that monthly newsletter, we talk about all properties. So if a property is at 60% occupancy because we're depleting the occupancy, it's not even just the investors who are invested on that property. It's all, our whole database learns that. Even if you're not an investor, you learn that because I believe in transparency. You have nothing to hide. We work very, very hard. We do the absolute best we can and we're going to, you know, just put it out there, what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, so that's number one. Um, if you're an investor, 
we do quarterly updates. So our quarterly updates are very thorough. They involved all the operational aspects that are going on with the property, but they also involved a very detailed look at all the financials. But it is presented in a way in which the investors can understand even if you're not financially savvy. So all of our metrics are based off of what we originally promised you, you know, and or projected. I shouldn't use the word promise, but projected because there's no guarantee. But it, all of our measures are against what was originally projected versus the actual performance. We just had those updates um, on Tuesday night. We went through, you know, all of our quarterly presentations to our investors. And one of our investors asked, you know, with a changing insurance environment, have you changed your goal, like in terms of what you're measuring against when you're showing us this data? Has that changed? And I said, no, it hasn't changed. Because regardless of whatever's impacting the property, our goal remains the same. We we projected this. This is our target. We don't change our, our um, goal for hitting your returns because of the changes in the market we force ourselves to figure out a way to make it work. We force ourselves to figure out a more creative way that we didn't see before that we're going to find out to still achieve your returns. So that's something that I think in terms of just first educating um, your investors, because not a lot of investors understand this whole rate cap situation or the floating debt um, going through. So for this particular property, one of our quarterly presentations was spent just educating everyone on that and then how it's impacted. So every time we get an assessment and they re-upped our accrual, that we can tell the investors and they know how it impacts because we've already talked about it. So, um, you know, that is something that I firmly believe in from day one that you should always be very transparent with your investors and provide good communication because I think that investors, first of all, like that. I think that builds trust because the investors know that we're doing everything we possibly can. We're keeping them up to date. Um, and yeah, if I was an investor, you know, you got to treat investors the way you would want to be treated. I am an investor in all of our deals. Jay and I, we always say we're the second investor with the bank being the first investor on all of our deals. And we always put in anywhere between a half a million to two million on every deal of our own capital, our general partnership does. So in terms of, you know, how would you want to be treated? Do the right thing. So be transparent is the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think what I always feel odd saying this, but, you know, communication is, is probably the most important thing to me as an LP, because like, if you explain what's happening and, and it's, then, then I understand, then I'm okay with it. But if you say, well, you know, here's a capital call, we might do one later, but you don't tell me that, then I'm going to have an issue. So communication, transparency, that that's awesome. Um, we're, we're getting down to the end here. And I, I want to make sure I touch on this. You wrote a book, the only woman in the, in the room, and I can see it on your, on your counter back there. Um, and, and, Left Field Investors, we've started a, a club and it's called the Women's League and it's just for women because, um, you know, what we noticed and actually the women in our group noticed at our meetup was, you know, there aren't, there aren't as many women 
in the room, as, as you said it, and it's just a bunch of a bunch of guys. And so we want a place where women can get together and be able to talk without, you know, having to worry about the, the men in the room. I guess is, is what I'm saying. So can you talk a little bit about what what kind of had you write the book? Why why did you write the book? And and how can we get more women involved in this type of investing? And and what can people like you know our group, our community do to promote women to get some women, more leadership from women and just more inclusion? Great question. So to start with, the reason I wrote the book is I attended a conference and I had never, it never dawned on me. I mean, I went to an all boys high school that went co-ed my first year there. So I was outnumbered. I lived with 14 other boys my senior year of college. It didn't dawn on me there. And I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Once again, mostly men up at the top didn't dawn on me there. But at this conference, at this real estate conference, there was a women's organization, the Real Estate Invest Her community, that asked for every woman, every woman in attendance at this event to have lunch together. So out of 450 attendees, two tables, just two tables were able to be pushed together. And I think there were 16 of us that sat together. And while everyone was talking, I'm literally looking around the room going, I can't believe that two tables fit all of us. So on the way home, I was driving home with my husband. My husband and I are both real estate, you know, in the business together. Um, and I turned to him and I said, I'm writing a book called The Only Woman in the Room. And it's going to focus on women in real estate. I don't know what it's going to be about, but that's what I'm going to write. And he was like, okay. And for the next year, I thought it over and I was very intentional, uh, intentional about meeting other women in the space and the other thing that dawned on me is that when I go to these events, women are often either interviewing men on a panel or on a side stage. Very rarely do women get the main stage. Very rarely are women the keynote. I looked at the men. What did they have that when they got introduced, what was differentiating them? One of the things that was differentiating them was a book behind their name. They were the best-selling author of blah, blah, blah. So I thought to myself, well, I can provide a platform in which I have been inspired by other women that can have a book to their name that they can use to get on the main stage. So that was one reason I wrote the book that, you know, besides just realizing it. The second reason is because I wanted to bring more women into the fold. And if I highlighted all of these women in this space, I thought more people could look at these women and say, I can do it too. And then third reason is because I have two young girls and I thought when they're teens, they're going to be like, mom is not cool. And if they look and see <laughs> that other women are doing this too, you know, they can look and see, oh, you know, I attach this, you know, this, I relate to this woman. So to me, it was very important that you could pick up the book and whether you're a woman or a man, you can relate to that person, at least one one person. So every woman got a chapter. I just gave them a general topic and a word count, and then they took it from there. I think there are two sentences in the entire book that actually speak about being the only woman in the room. The rest of the book is actually quite incredible. I get more compliments from men about this book than women. And the number one reason is because they can't believe how transparent and willing to share information um, and how to do things and why. Um, 
in this book than other books that they've read. So they've been really inspired. So that is kind of the reason behind um, writing the book. Your second question in, in respect to how do we get more women at the table, so to speak, it's actually um, quite simple. And it all it involves is just asking. So we all have a sister, a friend, a cousin, a mother. It, it doesn't matter who, a call, work colleague. And just ask them, say, do you want to come to this event with me? Do you Are you interested in learning about real estate? I think you should. It might be a good idea because at the end of the day, women outlive men six to eight years longer. And that doesn't impact only other women. It impacts the caregivers. And oftentimes that can be men. So in terms of the financial burden, there's anywhere, and this is pre-COVID data once again, so it's probably a lot higher than this, but it's anywhere from 288000 to almost $400,000 of that cost of those six to eight year period that uh, women outlive men. So the burden is shared by everyone. And real estate is a vehicle that can... Um, you know, just offset that expense and set people up for better financial success with their life. So I'm a huge proponent for extending that invitation, asking, you never know, um, even your wife may want to do it and you might not even realize because, you know, we just talked about how it's more a business than it is real estate oftentimes, right? So when you think about it like that, there isn't a single person who can't add value then, right? They could be really good at marketing. They could be a CPA. They could be attorney. They could be an admin. They could be an operator. They can be in construction. Every single career carries over to the business. So there is something that someone can relate to within this field. It's just really having the opportunity to take action. That's great. That's very well said. And, you know, we're doing um, with, with our women's league uh, group, we're, we're trying to give them more time and space at our meetup and other places to get together and, and get more women in the group. And so it's just it's inspiring to uh, to hear you say all of that. And we're, we're trying to be as supportive as we can and, and get more and more women into LFI, because what we want to do is we want to create avenues where everyone has the opportunity to create financial freedom for themselves and their families, whatever that means. And that means including, as you said, everybody, right? Not just, not just half of us. Um, so last question I always ask is what is a great podcast that you listen to? A great podcast that I listen to is actually my husband's podcast. And, um, he does it with my partner, Jay Scott. Um, and then Mauricio and AJ Osborne, um, they are, uh, Mauricio rule is the, uh, uh, founder of Premier Law Group. Um, and AJ Osborne is um, the owner of Cedar Creek, which is a self-storage um, investment firm. So the four of them, they meet every single week and their show is called Drunk Real Estate. So they talk about real estate over um, a glass of who knows what. So as the show goes on, it gets more and more out of control, um, but it yes. covers everything from the economy to uh, real estate to um you know, the market in general, um, they're very, very knowledgeable. They have very differing views. Um, so that gets interesting as well. But um, I would recommend the Drunk Real Estate Show. And you can um, stream it on Apple, um, but you can also watch it on YouTube. I think it's more entertaining on YouTube, but do as you may. Um, so... <laughs> 
That's awesome. I'll have to check it out on YouTube. It's a great podcast. I've been listening to it. And just so everybody knows, Jay Scott, your, your partner, and one of the hosts of that show is also an LFI infielder. So we're big fans of Jay and, and his commentary in our in our forum. And then we also get to listen to him on the podcast. So fantastic recommendation. Last thing, if listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Bar Down Investments or any of the other things that you're doing, what's the best way they could do that? The best way to do it is you can follow me on all socials at Bad Ash Investor, B-A-D-A-S-H Investor. I have a YouTube channel as well. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm literally on every social. And from there, you can connect to uh, Bar Down Investments. We also have a coaching platform, Apartment Addicts. Um, you can link to the book. Really, you can link anywhere from there. So... Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate your time and we appreciate learning with you. Thank you again for having me. Attention all left fielders. We're excited to announce our highly anticipated second meetup in the left field happening on October 4th through the 6th in Columbus, Ohio. Join us for a fantastic opportunity to meet your fellow left fielders and connect with amazing sponsors and professionals. We have a special infield event planned on Wednesday night, October 4th, followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Thursday the 5th and half day on the 6th. Don't wait to register as spots are limited to the first 150 people who sign up. Stay tuned for finalized agenda packed with partner presentations, engaged panel discussions, networking opportunities, and more. We can't wait to see you in Columbus, Ohio this October. Register on our website and secure your spot at the meetup in Left Field 2023. It's time to connect, learn, and grow together. Really enjoyed my conversation with Ashley. Learned a ton, which is always a, a bonus of uh, being able to host this podcast. You saw the things she talked about. Number one job is protect investor capital. If I'm investing with someone, I love to hear that. But as you progress through the podcast, you could hear she's sincere about that. And, and that gives you a lot of comfort. And she also mentioned, you know, she wants to run it like a business and it doesn't matter if it's real estate or if it's not real estate. First, you have to have the business skills to be able to run a business and each asset is its own business. And she talked about operations being the most important. And you could tell just from listening to her that she has it down and they've, they're thinking about all of these things. They're not just an operator going in and buying an asset. They're business owners going in and, and buying a business and running that business. And so gives you a lot of confidence, I think. And, you know, she wants more control over different parts of the business that she's operating because that leads to more success. So fantastic. I love the way that she says that. And then one thing that really hit me is, you know, she, she was talking about other operators and a lot of them, you know, are celebrating uh, buying the property and they're sending out emails saying how, how great it is that they just bought a property. And yeah, it, it is great and it's cool. But when you're celebrating with your investors, it seems more appropriate, as she said, they celebrate when they sell it because that's when they're making all kinds of money for their investors. On the buy is when operators are often making a bunch of money on themselves through fees, which they they, they earn those fees, so that's okay. But I, I like just the, the philosophy or the mindset of we're gonna celebrate this asset when we sell it because that's when we've accomplished what we're going to, right? You're not celebrating the, the game before you go out and play it, right? You're going to play the game and celebrate afterwards. So I just love that attitude. Um, and the final thing, you know, we, we had a little conversation about women in real estate, and that's also nice to to get more women on this show and, 
and really women that are leaders in the industry. And, and I just think it's great that she is sharing that with others, writing this book, including others in that book, and then trying to get more women in the room, so to speak. So we love that. We love our um, the, the Women's League, LFI Women's League, and we try to support them as best we can. And I think uh, Ashley would be a, a great uh, either meeting guest or, or something. But again, we leave that to the uh, LFI women to decide, but we're definitely going to make an introduction there. So again, really enjoyed uh, talking to Ashley, and we'll definitely be keeping track of her and, and see how uh, and see what we can do in the future. So that's all for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.